everyone. Welcome to the Shift Podcast. This month, we have an episode recorded as part of our second annual celebration of behavioral science, which we run here at HRW in April. The Shift team dissected various topics, from behavioral change models to segmentations or patient empowerment. And for that one, check out our podcast number 24 for an in-depth discussion. As part of the webinar, we answered a few burning behavioral science questions from the audience, and here they are. Throwing things over to the shift team who are eagerly sitting here ready to discuss and take questions. And I'll start you all off with your first question of the day. So this question that's been submitted asks, which biases are under-recognized in healthcare marketing or market research? I'm happy to take this question, Kathy. And I think it's a really good question because we do take a bit of a different approach in healthcare marketing than in consumer marketing. In consumer marketing, there's a real emphasis on the role of identity and on the role of ego in shaping people's behavior. You can think of like L'Oreal because you're worth it, that kind of thing. We appeal to people's egos as a nudge. But in healthcare, we tend to operate under the assumption that doctors become doctors because they want to help people. So we assume that things like appealing to altruism or to values are going to be more effective motivators. And it's totally true that doctors do become doctors because they want to help people, but that doesn't mean that they're not still human. And I think we can underestimate that humanity sometimes in healthcare marketing. So I would say in answer to that question that we underrecognize the impact of ego bias and the role of identity in uh, doctors' behavior and decision-making. So doctors don't just want to know what it means for the patient, but also for themselves and for their colleagues. Building on that as well, like another kind of common assumption in healthcare is that doctors are automatons who are capable of onboarding like any amount of information. So yeah, of course they have super high specialized qualifications to be physicians and they have studied and are capable of absorbing and digesting complicated information. But that doesn't mean that they want to do it every second of every day and that they want every, you know, all the information that's presented to them in a really academic like quantitative intense format that they have to parse through in order to find the kind of red thread. So again, consumer marketing is really good at simplifying things down, but sometimes in pharma and healthcare, it's like, give them the complexity and it's like, no, don't. Yeah, I completely agree. It's always what they say they want, but in reality, we all want it to be simple and easy. Great. Thank you both. First question ticked off. So let's move on to the next submission that we had today. How do you know which is the highest priority bias to leverage or overcome in order to grow the business? And I sympathize with this because as researchers, you often give us so much uh, in terms of the underlying biases, and it's really helpful to know where to start and what to prioritize. So I love this question because I think we tackle it all the time. Yeah, we do tackle it all the time. And um that's a good question. So thank you for whoever submitted it. I, um, I'll take this one and I'm sure others will have builds on it, but you know, behavioral science research has given us some kind of important criteria about how to assess what is going to be the most important and most practical solution. So those are usually the things that we kind of consider when we're thinking about which is going to be the highest priority for the clients. So Susan Mickey, who's one of the researchers at UCL, has devised what are called the appease criteria, which is like affordability, practicality, effectiveness, cost effectiveness, acceptability, side effects, and equity. We ultimately, in a lot of our work, boil that down into a grid that has two axes. So thinking about the importance of the behavioral factor. So how prevalent is that particular behavioral bias? 
for this client in their circumstance with their customer group. So how massive and how big of a barrier is that for this particular brand? But then adding in that kind of practicality um, aspect, it's like, how changeable is this bias? How practical is it to do interventions that are actually going to make a difference for this brand? If we've got lots and lots of biases on our projects, sometimes we'll plot them on those axes, um, sometimes to the client, sometimes just as our own analysis, but trying to think about, okay, what are the ones where there's the greatest opportunity to actually make some kind of difference, but also it's the most important and really targeting both a little bit of the kind of easier short-term ones, but also what are the big long-term chunky projects that are going to take a long time, but are ultimately going to have the biggest impact for the brand. So really considering them on those dual axes is a lot of how we approach that question. Okay, so our next submission, very hot button innovation at the moment. Where do you stand on using facial coding, eye tracking and voice tonality recognition during research so you can get additional layers of behavioral data? And I guess, where does that sit with the work that you guys are doing? Oh, I can jump on this one. I think if we're talking about measuring emotion and emotion technology, we need to talk first about emotion itself. And we know that there are lots of academic systematic reviews and meta-analysis that have been done, and they agree that emotion is not a concrete thing that can be measured. It's not a clear process that manifests in the same way for all the individuals. And it doesn't even manifest the same way for the same individual. So our anger could manifest very expressively one day or for the same person very quietly another day. Likewise, cultures can shape emotion. Different cultures can manifest happiness or sadness or disgust in different ways and are all on a spectrum and, again, different for different occasions for the same individual. And I think the next thing to keep in mind is that those techniques that are trying to measure emotions are not always very accurate. Kate, you have a lot of experience with those, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, Alex, because this is obviously a space that we're monitoring super closely, like the question asker um, implied, you know, it's, it would be great to be able to have additional measures to try and get towards people's emotion and measuring their emotion or more reliably capturing it. But a lot of things like EEG headsets, um, webcam based facial recognition software or voice tonality software are not particularly sensitive and so and they vary a lot from measure to measure so even like even where there are those technologies that claim to measure emotion setting to one side the fact that emotion is kind of more constructed socially than it is a thing like you talked about a lot of these measures just don't have the sensitivity or reliability to be able to do that even if it were something that we could measure so Unfortunately, we're just not able to really endorse the use of those technologies as they stand at the moment. Thank you. Okay, on to our next submission now. So what are the main biases that apply in every situation and does such a thing exist? Yeah, I can take this one. Yeah, so while it would be very convenient if there were biases that applied in every situation, as in real life, everything is context dependent. So there aren't really any one size fits all biases. And we're skeptical when we see our peers in the industry kind of using models that boil behavior science down to just a few components. That being said, when we break things down into categories using frameworks like Combi or Mindspace, there tend to be certain biases that crop up in certain categories. For example, social norms will often come up in the opportunity domain of the combi framework. And also different types of research tend to uncover different kinds of biases. For example, concept and messages and messaging testing will often be riddled with cognitive load if too many messages are being communicated at once. But cognitive load can also show up 
differently in different contexts. For example, HCPs can be flustered when they're overloaded by lots of alternative treatment options and there's no clear roadmap for which ones to prescribe. Pretty much the answer to the question is no, unfortunately not, but there are biases that crop up often in certain projects and in certain models and in certain categories. You become very familiar with those. All right. So a bit of a change of pace with this one. So looking to the future, what do you think is the next big thing in behavioral science in market research? Uh, I think I might pop the mic, actually, and just stay on the line. Uh, so the next big thing, so I feel quite strongly about this. So essentially, I, I think it's about big data and the combination of sort of big data, data analytics and behavioral science and machine learning or its role in that. So it's quite a multifaceted thing. But essentially, we're in the age of big data, and that really shone a light on how advancements in technology have meant that there is so much, much, much more data available. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of data points about each and every one of us generated every single day. And the challenge with that is then, okay, well, you've got all of this information, but how do you actually sift through it and create anything meaningful or useful or extract? like the valuable things from all of that. And so with big data and machine learning, it really allows us to analyze at a much more granular level that simply wasn't possible before. And we're still continuing to make huge strides in that, in the way forwards in how we're going to get better at that. And that's that's only going to progress. And I think Google Trends, for instance, can give or can reveal some really startling facts about behavior and in doing so also provide ways of predicting it and with the prediction comes the ability to adapt and adjust and change and that's the role of obviously behavioral science and behavior change there's a book in particular that i would really recommend which is a great read absolutely fascinating it's called everybody lies by seth stephen davidovich uh, and he basically looks at big data and behavior and life choices and things like, you know, professional and sporting success and careers. But one of the things he gives a really impactful uh, example of was how one of Obama's speeches uh, on condemning hate crimes against Muslims actually had an unexpected backfire effect. So on the internet, it actually resulted in kind of further fueling intolerance. And that was based on the search terms and what people were searching for. And so we know that intolerance in of all sorts of different forms is often based on a combination of fear and ignorance. And up until that point, and as a result of that, the top Googles relating to Muslim people at that point in America were centered around the search terms, terrorists, extremists, refugees, which are obviously hugely loaded and not at all an accurate representation of of the people. But after making just a few small changes to the tone and the content of that speech, which he then delivered the following year, for the first time in a year, the top searches for Muslims became athletes, because it was all about the success and the sporting success that the US had like benefited from um, as a result of what they were contributing. So it's it's really powerful stuff. I know you went to a really fascinating conference at the CBC recently, Emma. I don't know if you have anything you want to add. Yeah, for sure. And so there's a really exciting project coming out of UCL Centers for Behavior Change, which also uses artificial intelligence and machine learning, and it's called the Behavior Change Project. It's still in its infancy, but essentially it's a collaboration between behavioral scientists and computer scientists and systems architects 
Um, and the goal is to create constantly up-to-date searchable database of behavior change intervention and the proven impact on behavior. What that means for us as applied behavioral scientists is that we can essentially, or we will be able to go into that system and answer questions like what interventions work, how well, for whom, in what domains, for how long, <laughs> why, and having that level of precision and access to the evidence basis of behavior change science, I think will really change the game for how we're able to apply behavioral science. And it's such an exciting democratizing technology in the space. So I'm really excited for that. Very exciting. Thank you so much. The next question is a bit more centered on our clients today. So what advice do you have for client teams trying to make better use of behavioral science? I think um, what we've seen work really well with a lot of client teams is just having kind of internal advocates and internal champions is really important for convincing teams to take on research that has a behavioral science lens. Although, again, I think it's getting a lot more prevalent within all kinds of organizations that a lot of people are interested in and knowledgeable about behavioral science, but that really helps a lot in getting everybody on board with behavioral science. So the advice that we have for those clients, it's kind of twofold. One is we do a lot of training and we offer a number of different kind of master classes, but just to help give the organization greater understanding of what are some of the behavioral science components. So trying to facilitate those trainings within the organization, we've really seen have a big impact for a lot of our client teams. The other thing is to use behavioral science on people. Like a lot of times you believe it when you see it. So for budding behavioral scientists within client organizations that are looking to convince their teams of the value of it, run your own experiments, like experiment with the headline for an an invite that you're sending out to your team and then say, oh, you really, you know, a lot of you accepted this invite. I used this nudge and kind of show them how well it worked because once they've kind of seen it, then it really helps with the buy-in. We've seen that a lot as well, where we sometimes will look at, you know, an executive summary of a recent project and just talk about some of the behavioral biases we've already seen can be a lot more convincing for new client teams than just talking theoretically about behavioral biases. So actually seeing how it relates to their business problem is usually an aha moment for those clients. I love those moments. It's always very exciting. Brilliant. Okay, so this is another question that we've had submitted. So what is a bias that you use in your work life? So we're making everything very real now. What actually affects the shift team in the wild? In the wild. Yeah. Can I go first? This has just really sprung to mind because I was working with it literally just a few hours ago. But one of the biases that is a recurring theme for me that I often see cropping up is concreteness. Essentially, um, concreteness is is a bias where by nature, people are far better at noticing and recalling concrete ideas and information uh, that they find much more memorable and compelling compared to things which are more abstract or intangible in nature. A good way to determine whether something is concrete or abstract is to ask ourselves, can I draw it? If I ask you to draw a plant, um, you can to varying degrees of capability, I'm sure. But generally speaking, we know what we're going for. The same with a sunset or uh, if I asked you to draw exercise. But what if I asked you to draw truth or quality or efficacy? It is so much more difficult. It's so much more abstract. And yet these are particularly efficacy and quality, quality of life. These are things that come up time and time and time and again for our clients that are so important to try and make tangible so that it's more meaningful for the HCPs that we're working with. So 
helping clients find ways of presenting data in concrete and tangible ways is something that I'm always mindful of when I'm working. But I'm also mindful of trying to do that in my own work. So when I'm explaining these biases, I try to make them as concrete and as tangible as possible so that my clients can relate to them and understand them in their own terms as well. So yeah, concreteness. My answer to this question is more about how I manage my time. So lots of Behavioral science research has shown us the cognitive cost of interruptions and how being interrupted during your day can really affect your productivity. So it's very typical for us to be bouncing between meetings or trying to squeeze tasks in between meetings or being interrupted by Teams messages or Slack messages or emails in the process. But when our time gets carved up into little pieces like that, which is what behavioral scientists would call time confetti, we're much less efficient. And even if we think we're being productive, it it has a cost on our cognitive resources. So what I try to do to avoid time confetti is to schedule uninterrupted blocks of time in my calendar. So sometimes I'll, if I know I have a lot of meetings that day, I'll try and put them all back to back so that I have some uninterrupted time to get tasks done. And that helps me engage in deep work or deep focus, which is for me a much more effective way of being productive and ticking things off that to-do list. Well, I'll jump in now. So I'm a big fan of temptation bundling, and it's something that Katie Milkman has done a lot of work on. It's the idea that if you pair kind of an activity that you don't enjoy as much, uh, such as stretching with an activity that's more enjoyable, such as listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks, then you end up enjoying that activity, both activities a lot more. I implement this all the time in every aspect of my life. I think I was doing it long before I even knew there was a term for it. But in terms of my work life, I'll often listen to music that I like while doing tasks that require less creative thinking, such as admin tasks. And it makes them a lot less intimidating and a lot more enjoyable. And strangely enough, sometimes I'll even end up looking forward to those activities because I know it means that I'll be listening to some good music, big one for me. I also do a bit of that when I run, sign on the running time is podcast listening time as well. I practice what we know as goal gradient effect. This tells us that as we move closer to a goal, our efforts, our motivation to achieve it increase. So then if that goal is not defined too well or the way to achieving it is not clear, then we can lose that psychological motivation, that stamina. So then having clear steps and goals helps us maintain that stamina. And what I do when working on a project is I set myself smaller, like mini clear goals and steps, not just deliver this project. For example, when I work on a debrief, I separate everything into checkpoints. One, my checkpoint is get the story down, the behavioral insights get it down another checkpoint would be format another checkpoint would be proofread and so on and that helps me keep an eye on those goals and maintain that psychological stamina that's great i yeah i'm i'm less good at, at goal gradient effect alex um and i could learn a lot from your approach it's kind of just makes it quite a nebulous task uh, one that i often use when thinking about how we present insights to clients is one that's called the identifiable victim effect and this sounds maybe intimidating because it's got the word victim in it but it's basically just the tendency for us to be better able to relate to one person rather than kind of mass statistics. And I think, again, we do this quite intuitively in the way that we approach a lot of market research, but is thinking about, okay, what are some anecdotes that I can give about a specific person and how that's affected them rather than just looking at big, you know, percentages. Like um, there's a quote from Mother Teresa that says, if I look at the mini, I will never act. And if I look at the one, I will. So when we think about presenting things back, it's important to give the statistics and not just pick, cherry pick anecdotes, but it's also really valuable because the individual stories and anecdotes are going to be a lot more motivating and compelling. 
Yeah, all, all really great ideas. Personally, I use behavioral science for my own productivity, and it's something that I would do if I was a behavioral science analyst or if I was something totally different. So one example is I use commitment devices to avoid looking at social media on my phone, remain productive, essentially to reduce pr procrastination and improve goal-oriented behavior and just productivity in general. So for those who don't know, a commitment device is basically a voluntary mechanism to enforce a commitment to a behavior by imposing restrictions on certain choice options. And having the effect of reducing the likelihood to stray from your goals or commitments or the desired behavior that you want. So I'm sure it's relatable for a lot of people in this webinar that, you know, to remain productive at work, I would want to reduce the social media distractions from my phone. The easiest way was through a commitment device and to eliminate them altogether. So I actually had a friend of mine who happens to be my roommate install an app on my phone that eliminates social media entirely from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday to Friday. So obviously this eliminates choice options and it, it's a means of you know maintaining my commitment to the desired behavior, but also since it's a voluntary, it has to be voluntarily imposed and I could delete my app at any time. However, there is a consequence for me doing this as well. So there's a consequence for me deviating from the commitment device. And that is, were I to attempt to uninstall or guess the password, my friend who installed that password would receive a notification. So there's that social consequence, that shame as well, that really keeps me on track. I love that, David. I've recently had to put a time limit on TikTok because I found that I was spending way too much time on TikTok. So I get a notification when I spend 45 minutes and you can override it, but it's just the self-shame of knowing that I've overridden it. But I would love if there were a function to text a friend. I love that. None of those things work for me and I've deleted all my social media apps. And I can tell you that works because I don't have any accounts anymore. Thank you for listening to us. If you'd like to get in touch, please email shift on shift at hrwhealthcare.com or get in touch via Twitter at hrwshift. Stay tuned for our next podcast on choice overload. Bye for now.